Hey, how's it going? It's Alex. So we've been talking about home builders lately, and just a couple days ago, we were talking about the company Lenar. That's ticker symbol L-E-N. And we learned some things about what the basic business does and where it comes from. And this is all great information, but how do we think about it from a numbers perspective? How do we actually take action on analysis of a company and figure out if it makes a good investment or not? That's what we're going to be focusing on today's episode of Stock Stories. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the show. My name is Alex Mason. I am your host and stock storyteller. This is the Stock Stories Podcast, the place where we decode the business behind the stock. And of course, look at mental models too. So yeah, this is a special episode because I'm actually releasing this episode on a Friday, which is, you know, kind of a bonus for you. And so I hope you enjoy this episode. I wanted to wrap up the conversation that I had with Becco Jang. We heard him a couple of days ago when we talked about Lennar Corporation and then the week prior where we just kind of got to know each other and talked a little bit about our investing and podcasting journeys. But this episode is going to be focused on the numbers. How do we get into the financial statements of Lennar and make a determination of whether or not this is a business worthy of our capital and our time as investors. And we talk about some concepts that, frankly, I haven't really touched on much in the show in most episodes. So I'm really excited to hear what Becco has to bring to the conversation from the Value Investor TV podcast. And of course, I'll be sharing my thoughts as well. So without further ado, let's get into the analysis of Lennar. All right. Welcome, welcome to the show. This is Alex Mason here with my friend, again, Becco Jang from our respective podcast, the Stock Stories podcast, as well as Value Investor TV. Becco, thanks for joining me again. No, thank you. That's good to be back and uh, excited to talk about part two of Lenar Corporation. I know. Yes. So definitely, if you haven't listened to part one episode, Becco and I released earlier in the week, definitely check that one out first because that lays a lot of the foundation of just the business model, the history, that kind of stuff. Today's episode is really going to be focused. It's going to be like numbers heavy, focused on actual financials, and we'll, we'll get into a few other things too. Awesome! Yeah, excited to dive in. Where should we start, Alex? Well, let's let's start. Let's follow the money. Let's start at the top line. What do you start think? At the top line. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so I have I have their income statement open right here, and I think what's interesting about this. So why don't I like just quick paint a quick picture of the magnitude of of revenue that we're talking about here. So last year, twenty twenty, they ended the year with about twenty two billion dollars in revenue. So that's the kind of the magnitude we're talking about here, 
And then, and then you obviously take out all the expenses, uh, cost of goods sold, R&D cost, SGNA, blah, blah, blah. And then ultimately at the bottom line, you have about $2.4 billion in net income, uh, which amounts to about 10%, right? So 22 down to two, about 10% in net profit margin. So that's kind of the big scope of this company. And if you look at the growth rate, so let's talk, talk about the growth rate at the top line. So the past okay. for the past three years, they've grown at about 20% year over year, compounded annual growth rate. And if you look, if you zoom out and look at past 10 years, they're grown, they've grown about at about 22%. So this is just a top line revenue. But what's really interesting is if you look at the income statement, right? The not income statement, but the bottom line, net income. The past three years, they've grown at about 50% year-over-year growth, compounding annual growth rate. And at about and for 10 years, they've grown at about, about 40%, less than 40%, 38%. And so you're seeing kind of you're seeing top line growth over the over the t- last 10 years and three years. And then if you look at sort of the bottom line, they've also grown quite quite well, but more significantly. So not only are they growing the pie, but they're also optimizing the margins and growing the net income side of things also. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting because I thought the home growing, the, the, the home building market, I didn't, I didn't think that they would, they would have this sort of explosive growth, but I certainly learned, was able to achieve this in the past 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Becco, looking at kind of turning our attention to the bottom line real quick of net income. You talked about the past 10 years or so. It seems to me that the bulk of that money, the bulk of those earnings have really just come through in the past, what, four years or so? I mean, back yeah. in, I'm looking at end of fiscal 2017, net income was only about $810 million. Then it just starts exploding, like 2018, $1.7 billion. 2019, $1.8. Then 2020, $2.4 billion in net income. So really the first part of this decade, we weren't really seeing a whole lot of bottom line growth. And even though revenue seemed to be doing pretty well as far as growth was concerned, but that that earnings growth really showed up in the last couple of years. So what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's an astute observation. I think a lot of it has to do with sort of like the the ultra you know ultra low interest rate environment. We talked about it in the first episode, the home building industry as a whole is influenced heavily by the overall macro macro landscape. And namely the interest rate, right? If the mortgage rate is, is low, people start buying houses. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, what we're seeing here, I think might be a reflection of that. And then also, uh, I guess that's more on the top line side of things. On the income side of things, I think they're doing a good job. So if you look at the, if you look at the operating margin, for example, operating profit margin, if you look at that, so you said in 2017, operating profit margin, you're talking about 9%. And then net income about 6%. That number went up to about 13% and 10%, 11% uh, in 2020. And so you're looking at a you know, margin optimization over the, over the last three years. Yeah. So I think that's, I think, I think they're, they're focusing on, on that. It's, it's quite evident just by looking at the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one thing we should ask ourselves too is, like, how are they able to do that? And will they be able to do that in the future? So one thing I'm thinking about is this top line growth. 
how are they able to do that other than just the fact that interest rates are low right now, people want to buy houses. What about the, let's talk about the supply side of homes and the fact that supply has been constrained so much in inventory that I think it allows a builder like Lennar to maybe charge some higher prices going forward. Yeah. So I think you bring up a really interesting point and maybe we can zoom out a little bit and talk about kind of a more of a macro take on this, which is if you look at kind of the uh, commodities that goes into building a house, a big part of that is lumber, right? Lumber is a big part of, of, of building a house. And if you look at lumber prices, if you've, if you've uh, sort of followed the news and the financial market, lumber prices have been going parabolic. It's kind of absurd to, to see that, but I have this chart opened here in Wall Street Journal article. Let's see. So average, okay, so this is average price of lumber in the years between 2015 and 2019. It was hovering below $400 per thousand board feet. So that's the common denominator, common unit. So a thousand, about you know under 400. Now, okay, now in 2021, you're talking about the same unit. You're talking about price of $1,600. Holy so smokes. It is, is <laughs> parabolic growth. It's like you're looking at a chart of a Bitcoin or something, right? It's, it's, gotten, it's gotten pretty bad. And so what, what you're going to see, I think, in the, coming, in the coming months and years, maybe not years, but in the coming, coming months here, coming quarters, is that the cost of goods sold is obviously going to go up, right? Because that's the good that you, know, you have to you have to acquire to build houses and then therefore the revenue is also going to go up but then you're 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 kind of you have to contextualize this in the broader context of macroeconomic kind of inflation so how much does a dollar go in in a, in a world where you got huge huge inflation everywhere and so i think that's something that we have to think about yeah and i i think another thing i want to kind of point or sort of pivot kind of pivot and 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 look at is and we'll get to this later on but if you look at the income Net income growth, as I mentioned, it's growing pretty rapidly. Uh, they ended the year uh, with uh, 2.5, 2.47 billion dollars of net income, and it has grown at at a, at a cliff of you know, 44, 45 percent over the last three years. But if you look at income EPS, right, earnings per share, because as shareholders, that's what it really counts, right, per share count. And if you look at that, the EPS growth has actually been performing. Not as quite, not as well as net income. So you're looking at growth of about 32 percent over the last three years, whereas the net income has grown 45 percent. So I think there is a share dilution at play here, which we'll sort of talk about later. But that's that's something that is something that to, to point out for investors. Definitely, yeah. There's it's always important as investors to look at obviously net income. How much is the company making in absolute dollars, but then how much are we actually receiving as shareholders? And there's a lot of companies out there that make revenue, but don't make profits. There's a lot of companies out there that make revenue and they make profits, but then their shareholders don't get a lot of those profits. And so we're trying to find ideally something with all three, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how this company performs in the, in the coming decade, in the coming quarters, especially with the in the context of like the, the cost of goods sold that we just talked about with lumber prices. And I think it'll also be really interesting because housing is sort of like the bellwether for economy. 
And so I think it'll be interesting to see how, how they perform. And even if you're not interested in buying this company as a, as a shareholder, I think it'd be interesting to just to keep an eye on them as a, as a kind of a put your finger, finger on the pulse of the economy kind of thing. I think that they can tell you a lot about how the, the macro landscape is changing. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, these, these housing stocks, if people are buying houses, they're feeling confident as consumers, right? They have access to credit. They want to move. They want to expand their family potentially. There's a, there's a lot of good things associated, especially culturally, just in America with home ownership. And so I definitely agree with you there, Becco. Is there something, because you mentioned, I think, a key point about the major cost driver of this business being lumber, or at least one of the major cost drivers being lumber, with the price skyrocketing within the last year or two, what do you what do you see as far as risk to the company's financials as far as positive or negative, whether lumber prices continue to go on this trajectory or go down? I'm yeah. curious about like those different scenarios and how that would play out. Yeah, I, I'd say kind of two things. This is what concerns me about a lot of the money printing that's happening is that money printing and a very easy to monetary fiscal policy that's that's been unfolding here for the last 10 you know 10 years and and now even more so after covid is that you're seeing incredible levels of asset inflation right so asset inflation you're talking about real estate you're talking about stock prices these are these are things that hold value when you have huge huge inflation they'll they'll sort of ride the curve with with the inflation and I think I think what, what's going to happen is the you know, home prices are going to go up, and therefore, or sorry, so the commodities are going to go up, right, in price, and that's what we're seeing now. Commodities are going to go up, and therefore, as companies, as a dynamic sort of dynamic entities in the capital market, what they're going to do is they're going to raise their prices too, and so they're going to start raising prices of these of these houses that they build. But the unfortunate, I think, reality is that there you can you, you can only raise the prices of these houses so much. Right, because the the labor, the the reward that you get with spending your time working, the wage isn't going to inflate at the same rate as assets, and so you now have a situation where assets like houses are increasing in value because of inflation and because companies can raise prices, but then you as consumers, your labor isn't inflating at the same rate, right? Your reward for working isn't inflating at the same rate. Therefore, you have a situation where you can't buy these things anymore. So I think that's something that to call out as a sort of a macro risk to companies like this. <laughs> Hold up. So I got a comment on this. So I think people, it may not be so much, can people buy these houses? I actually think they will still be able to. Mm. I think it's a matter of how far are you willing to stretch to buy mm. these houses? Because one thing, this is several years ago when we were looking at purchasing our first home a couple years back, and I was looking at some data as far as what the the home average home value or sales price to income level is, what those ratios tend to look like by country. And of course, the U.S. is up there. It's, I think it was above three or four x for sure it's probably more now but one thing that really popped out at me is in a place like australia where 
home prices relative to annual incomes, that ratio was, I think it was above six or seven. And, and of course, Australia has a very developed economy, a, a strong market, just like the United States does. And so I'm looking at the correlations and I'm thinking, okay, maybe in the United States, things could continue to go as long as credit is still plentiful. I believe, and this is also based anecdotally on what I've observed being on the sites of home builders, which we discussed that a little bit last time, is people are thirsty to buy these houses. And they're willing to stretch if the bank is willing to give them the money. If they can get away with putting 5% down, they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I suspect that because the supply of new homes is so low and the demand continues to be high, that builders will continue to raise prices to keep pace with those cost of goods sold, those lumber prices. Of course, it can't go on forever. But I am curious to see if it's going to continue rising higher and higher for could be one, two, three more years, just based on those other constraints. I think you bring up actually a really good point, which is actually, I think you can totally make the argument that in fact, because of inflation, people are going to stretch themselves and buy these assets because when everything is inflating and what you have isn't worth the same, you have to put it in something that is going to appreciate in value right? Stocks, real estate. Therefore, people are going to be more incentivized to buy these things because we know that asset prices are going to inflate. Whereas if you just hold in cash, it's just going to melt away with inflation. So I think I think that's also a, a very plausible outcome. And perhaps and perhaps now I think about it more, more plausible outcome where people are buying houses left and right. Yeah, I think there's a real possibility it could continue, but we'll have to to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. So Becca, do you want to turn our attention now to the balance sheet? Take a look at that. Yeah, let's do that. So, so that was the income statement side of things. Let's look at the balance sheet. So what I like to do is when you have a balance sheet, you have to really look at what, what really takes a company out of the game. And that is not like anemic growth or anything like that. What, what really takes a company out of the game is their debt. So that's the first thing I like to look at. And so if you look at their debt, they ended the year 2020 with about $6 billion in debt. And I like to contrast that with free cash flow. And you want that ratio to be below three. And so what, what you're basically saying is if the company were to use all of their free cash flow to pay off their debt, it'll, t- it'll take about three years. Or you want it to be sort of less than three years. And if you look at that, they've done a, they've done a good job of sort of compressing that ratio down. So starting in 2017, it was at six and then now down to about one. And uh, yeah, so th- th- they've done a good job of cleaning out their balance sheet, especially from the debt standpoint. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's something I really like too is it seems like most of the past decade, they did what most typical large companies do. And that's just gradually increase their debt a little by little year after year. But then there is this turning point again around, it seems like around that same time period that we were discussing earlier around 2017, 2018, when things really started to take off for them that they made a conscious effort to reduce their long-term debt. And actually, management stated in the most recent 10K 
that delevering was a big priority for them. And I was like, oh, okay, usually I don't see companies management mention something like this unless things are really bad, <laughs> like already, like there's already a bad situation in the credit markets or in their particular industry. And they're pleading with their shareholders saying, please don't worry, I'm taking care of your capital. I'm getting rid of the debt. But they're not doing that. I like how Lennar management seems to be pretty proactive here. I mean, if we look at just the past couple of years, they went in 2018 from eight and a half billion in long-term debt to below 8 billion in 2019 to below 6 billion, about 5.6 billion in 2020. And that's a pretty steady decline. That's literally billions of dollars a year going into explicitly debt reduction. Mm -hmm. And that's not something I'm used to seeing, quite frankly, yeah. among large, large companies generally. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's something that, that we should commend. I think, I think we should encourage them to continue if you're a shareholder. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, I also just want to bring up the cash too, because that's also another part of like why companies go bankrupt. It's not necessarily just the debt, it's mm. general access to cash, access mm. to capital. And one of those places is the bank account, right? Retain earnings that become cash. And what I really like about this business is that they've managed to keep a lot of cash here. So they have over $2.7 billion in cash as of right now. And it was literally less than half of that a year ago. Right, Becco? Are you seeing similar numbers as me? It was like $1.2 billion in 2019 and yep. almost $3 billion now. Exactly. So that tells me that management they're taking the gains off of the, these COVID home sales and they're just banking it right now and paying off debt with it, which seems very wise to me. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a, I think that's a smart move. I think that's a smart move. I, I also want to point out the, you know, this is something that's going to come up when we kind of talk about the valuation exercise, but something that I like to point out is the return on equity, return on capital invested, capital employed, just to see where they are in terms of that, those ratios. So I quickly ran the numbers. So in 20, so if you, if you just use 2020 numbers, you're talking about return on equity of about 13%, 13, 14% and return on capital employed of, of about, about 10%, 10 to 11%. So that's sort of the number, the range we're talking about here, just a note. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and can you briefly explain, Becco, maybe exactly what is the difference between return on equity and return on capital? Yeah. Return on equity, you just simply take the, it's very, very simple. So you turn on equity, you just take the earnings and then divided by equity. So you're basically saying, with my equity base, this is how much I can make. And you want these ratios to be as high as possible. For example, like software companies traditionally, because they don't have a lot of assets, uh, which trickles down to, into equity, but they still have explosive growth, their return on equity is pretty substantial. We're talking about 30 40%. And so that's the return on equity. Return on capital employed is you're basically taking, you're, you're taking the, instead of the net income, you're taking operating operating income, and then you're dividing that by uh, total asset minus current liabilities. So that that's what we're doing. So so the reason why we're taking operating income instead of net income is we want to get rid of kind of jurisdiction differences between jurisdictions with tax 
tax implications. And you just want to compare, you know, apples to apples. And then from the denominator standpoint, you're taking you're taking current total asset minus current liabilities. And so that you're really talking about capital that's been invested in the company, employed by the company. So those are some of the difference um, differences. And there, and there are other other metrics also. Return on invested capital is, a, is another one. But they basically paint the same picture, which is how efficient is this company at utilizing their balance sheet to, to, to make money on the income statement side of things. Exactly. And thank you for that, Becco. Yeah, it was so precisely what you said. We're trying to determine by looking at these ratios, we're really just trying to understand is Lennar's management actually good with the assets and the money that they have? Are they making money with their current assets pretty much? And those different metrics are just slightly different perspectives of looking at that. Yeah, exactly. And and just just a personal kind of anchor that I like to put in place is I look at I like to look at companies that have high high return on capital, and usually the threshold for me would be like fifteen percent. But I'm also open to looking at companies that are below, and I've personally bought companies that are below. So it's just a suggestion, more so than like a hard cutoff for me. Okay, for sure. Yeah, I think that's a good rule of thumb too, just because you you obviously don't want to invest in a company where management's getting poor returns on the money they're investing or poor returns on their assets. That's just not a good thing. So tying that back to Lennar again, let's take another look. So return on equity, return on capital, somewhere in the 14 to 10% range, depending on how exactly you calculate it for this past year. So that doesn't quite meet your 15% threshold, right, Becco? No, it doesn't. It does not. But I think that certainly is a red flag. You want companies that can return higher growth. Because what it, what it basically means is that you have to kind of think about it from an opportunity cost standpoint. So if I put in money now, and I can expect about 15% or 14% of growth, and then now you weigh that versus a company that can return you 30%, 40%. And this is what this is sort of a famous quote from Charlie Munger. He said, the average, the over a long period of time, if you look at the stock price appreciation, and if you look at the growth rate of stock price appreciation, it usually matches return on equity. Exactly. Yeah, that's I I love that quote because it, it kind of just boils it down. He, he basically says, look, is management decent at deploying capital or not? And over the long term, you will see as an investor whether or not they are able to do that. And the amazing thing about companies, which last time we talked about competitive advantages, companies with durable competitive advantages, one of the ways that you can tell that quantitatively is with something like a high return on capital, with something like a high return on equity, particularly when this return on equity is non-leveraged. And there's a, a great formula, the DuPont return on equity formula, where you can actually break down the different components of return on equity to see how much leverage is working in the business to make that high. Because Becco, I'm sure you've seen sometimes there's companies out there that have really high returns on equity. But when you look deeper into the balance sheet, it's because they've leveraged up a lot. Exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, exactly. To your point, you have to really sort of understand how these formulas work. Because if you think about what is equity, equity is, you know, basically asset minus liabilities. If you have a huge, huge liabilities, your asset minus liability is going to be a small number. 
because you're subtracting asset minus a big number. So you're going to get a small number. So if you're dividing something with a very, very small number, you're going to get a high ratio. And so they sort of artificially inflate that. And that's why you have to look at various derivatives of return on equity, right? Return on invested capital, return on capital employed, things like these, these sort of metrics take into account. What was your favorite? I would say return on capital employed, I would say. I'd like to look at all of them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, as you said, they're very similar, right? But yeah. I'm imagining you like that because it's showing the return on how much management is actually putting back into the business, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Exactly. How about you? You know, I like, I, I honestly, I'm more of a newbie at return on capital employed. I don't use it that much. I really like return on equity and then breaking it down into its various components with a DuPont formula. Because to me, that that gives me, I feel like a clear picture of a lot of things at once. I can look at profit margins, asset turns, and leverage ratio all at the same time. And then see how they combine together too. So I like ROE. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's move on to uh, some other questions. Now that we've looked at income and balance sheet, let's see. Let's let's look at the management and how they how they have sort of dealt with the excess cash and what their incentive structure looks like. So maybe walk us through what what they've done, Alex, with their their excess cash. For sure. So yeah, I'm just looking real quick at the cash flow statement because that usually has a good good overview, particularly in the financing section. So one thing we can see is that this is the company that tends to issue stock. I mean, they repurchase their stock too, but they they have a lot of stock outstanding. And we talked a little bit earlier about the difference between net income and earnings per share, right? And how it's really important to make sure we're getting, ultimately getting that profit as owners. So they're diluted shares outstanding. So the amount of shares that they actually have. Back in 2012, the company had 223 million shares outstanding. And that number has increased over 300 million. So they've actually diluted shareholders quite a bit over time. And usually this is a a combination of things like stock options being exercised, secondary issues of stock on the stock market in order to raise more capital so they can fund their business. So this is a business that does buy back stock, but more more often than not, they're issuing stock. So they're raising money that way. So that's one thing that's happening with the cash. And then we also touched on already, they're buying back a lot of debt. They're retiring a lot of debt, getting rid of those notes, which Becco and I both think that that's a great thing, that the company is becoming more fiscally conservative with their balance sheet. And then I have another major point is the dividend. This is a company that pays a dividend and they paid a dividend for a long time. And one interesting thing about this is if we actually look at the amount of dividends that they paid, it's been relatively minor for several years. They reduced their dividend around the beginning of this decade, somewhere around there coming out of the financial crisis. And they've just held that steady at 16 cents a share for several years. And then this amazing thing happens last year where the company increases dividends multiple hundreds of percents to 
I think it's around 60 something cents a share now, but they just massively increased it after years of keeping it steady. So to me, that's a big, big signal. What do you think about that, Beko? Yeah, it's interesting. To your point, I haven't really looked into that aspect of it, how it's sort of the trend line, but I'm looking at it now. It's it's basically they've they've issued dividends to two digit millions, you know. Uh, a couple years ago, it was about 51. The year before that, 49 million. The year before that, 37 million. So low, mid, kind of two-digit millions. And then come 2020, they issued close to $200 million of dividend. So you're talking about 4x <laughs> of dividend payment. Well, what do I think about that? I think, I, I think a, a, as an executive of a company that's producing cash flow, you have a choice of whether to put that money back into the business because you are confident that the business can return high, you know, high, high yields. Or if you're not confident, you give it back to shareholders. You have to do one or one or, one or the other, or you buy it back. That's another way of giving it back to shareholders. I think they're just sort of weighing the the pros and cons of it. And they might have, maybe they're coming to a realization that actually, if let me actually take that back. Because if you look... This is kind of interesting. So, okay, we said the dividend has been going up or not has been going up. It started a step in 2020. If you look at the share purchase program and how much money they've spent every year, if you look at that, this past year, they spent about 300 million. The year before that, 500 million. The year before that, 300 million. So if you sum mm. those two things up, dividend, with stock repurchase program. If you sum that up, that basically means total shareholder kind of return, quote unquote. If you look at that, that's been kind of steady, I guess, more steady than the huge dividend payment. And so what you're seeing is the mix has sort of shifted. So in the past, it was more skewed towards the share purchase program and it has sort of shifted into more of a dividend payment in 2020. Oh, nice. Yeah. Thanks, Becca. I had not noticed that. And I appreciate you bringing that up because that's an interesting trend. I haven't really seen that most of the time. If I do see a shift in mix, it's the other way around. The company is maybe they're raising their dividend a little bit or holding steady, but then they're just going crazy on the the share buybacks because that tends to be in vogue right now in this day and age with taxes and everything. So I'm wondering, does the Lenar's management think that their stock is a little overpriced maybe? And that's why they're putting less money into buying back stocks. So there's, they just rather pay it out as dividends. I'm wondering if that's what they're trying to communicate with how they're deploying their cash. Yeah, I suppose that's like the, the rationale for doing that. Why would, I guess we can ask this question, why would why would they, let's say it's the same $500 million, you can choose to send it out as a dividend checks, or you can buy your stocks. Obviously, there are benefits to just buying your share back because it's more tax efficient, right? They're not taxed at the income level for shareholders. So I guess, yeah, to your point, maybe the management believes that the stock is overpriced at this point, so they're not going to buy. And therefore, they're just going to send out these dividend checks. Hmm. Yeah, I think it'll be more evident in years to come, maybe in the next one or two years, if there's dividend growth. Because if there's significant dividend growth, even after this big stair step up, then to me, that would indicate that 
this is a major priority for management. They want to be known as a strong dividend paying company and want to establish that reputation. Whereas if they just kind of keep it the same, then to me, that just means, all right, this is a cyclical company that's been holding off on sharing the rewards with shareholders in a certain way because they really wanted to beef up their balance sheet, beef up their revenues. And they spent an entire decade doing just that. They, they're healthy as far as a lot of the numbers we've discussed already. So I think this is kind of like a thing where management's like, hey guys, uh, thanks for owning our stock. We appreciate it. Here's a bunch of money. Thanks for waiting and <laughs> waiting through the, the recovery with us. Here's, here's a big payout. I'm wondering if it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be interesting to see how this trend line continues. I think another thing that we should sort of think about is when, when, when COVID hit, I think there was a lot of, you mentioned it's really vogue and trendy and chic to do buybacks. When COVID hit, I think there was a lot of discussions about banning buybacks, right? I mean, there's like government bailouts and then now like you're going to take the government bailout and buy your stocks. That didn't sit well with a lot of people. And there was a lot of kind of public anger towards big banks, airline industries doing these things, exhibiting these behaviors for the past for the past several years. So I think that also might be at play speculation, but I think that that's also maybe a cultural aspect to this also, social cultural aspect. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because that's how buybacks used to be viewed too back when, what was that guy's name? Singleton with Teledyne, mm-hmm. who he was just buying back tons of his company stock back in the early 20th century, I think it was. And nobody was doing this at the time. And people kind of looked at him like, are you really that bad of a capital allocator that all you can do is just buy back your own stock? Go expand your business. But investors benefited hugely from that. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see like how that, yeah. how that shifts. Exactly. Let's, let's shift gears and, and talk about, let's talk about the management's incentive structure, because I think that tells you a lot about how, what they're motivated by, right? What, what's that? What's, what's the famous quote by Charlie Munger? show me incentive structure and I'll show you outcome, something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. I All wouldn't right, be surprised so that he said that. Let's take a look. All right, here we go. All right, how is incentive structure formulated for this company, Lenar? So there's ba- base salary and then cash incentive and an equity incentive. I think what's important is to look at incentive plan for equity because that's is sort of the biggest portion of their their comp package. If you look at that, there are four metrics that they really focus on. One is gross profit, two, return on capital, three, total shareholder return, and then lastly, debt to EBITDA ratio. So there are four things that they are measured against. So let me repeat that. Gross profit, so really talking about the income side of things, optimizing for higher price than cost of goods sold, right? gross profit, return on capital. We talked extensively about that. Three, total shareholder return. So basically stock price appreciation. And then lastly, debt to EBITDA ratio. What do you think about that first off? Yeah, I like that. I love that it's it seems mostly tied to the actual performance of the business and not just shareholders. But I do like that there is a shareholder component because that, that has incentivized them to do things like buy back stock or pay dividends and make sure that their earnings per share is growing, but it can't grow too much because there are those other metrics there, like the debt to EBITDA 
So I like it. I'm curious, are there certain caps or thresholds for things like debt to EBITDA that they can't cross? Usually how these things work is that they set like 100% threshold and then like 200%, 300% threshold. And if you meet like 200, 300%, your equity comp will vary against those metrics. So I don't have those numbers in front of me, unfortunately. Okay. But what do you think of the overall structure conceptually? I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm really for companies that have return on capital as part of their, as part of their incentive structure. I think that's super important and underappreciated. What I don't want to see is people have no regard for the balance sheet and the the efficacy of their balance sheet as as, as measure against their income. So I think it's well structured. Nice, yeah. And and another thing I love to see too is when management rewards their employees with stock to align those incentives with their workforce. I don't see it that often other than maybe a employee stock purchase program or something, but that's another thing I like too. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully, maybe this is sort of the echo chamber of San Francisco, Silicon Valley kind of uh, way of operating. But I think that it's becoming more trendy to offer stock options to employees. I know like big tech companies obviously do that, not just for high-ranking executives. In the past, I know it has been only reserved for high-ranking executives, but now every employee gets a you know, part of their comp packages is that you get stock options, stock options for the company that you work for. So yeah, I definitely want to see some of that also where everyone gets to participate in the upside of the company. Yeah, for sure. So that's about management. Alex, if you don't mind, let's quickly run through some of the valuation exercise and just do a little exercise on discounted cash flow and, and see where this company sits and, and talk about some of the assumptions. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about it. All right. So I'll just go ahead and run through my exercise, what I've done and some of the assumptions baked into the calculation. And then we can tweak the numbers in real, in real time to see how the number changes. So I'm going to take the initial cash flow of about $2 billion because it's sort of the average over the past three years. I'm going to take about two, 2.4 is kind of the initial cash. And I'm going to peg the growth rate at about 20% for the next three years. And then in subsequent years, 12% and then down to 10% in year 10. So kind of 20, 12, 10 growth rate. And then discount rate that I like to use is just 10%. So okay. you set as 10% discount rate and then sure outstanding. You got debt level and cash and you run the numbers and I get about $110 per share. Quick pause real quick. Can you please explain for maybe a listener doesn't know what a discount rate is? What is that and why is it important? Yeah. So it, this is sort of kind of at the crux of why the the stock market has been going crazy is because there is no time value of money anymore because the interest rate is, is basically zero. And so what discount rate is, is the money that a company generates now, $10 or maybe like $100, let's say, $100 that you generate now versus $100 you generate in the future is going to be different because there's what's called time value of money. $100 in the future is going to be worth less because of inflation and everything else that goes with, with that. So what you want to optimize for is highest cash flow discounted back to the present time. And so you want to discount the $100 that you make in the future with that discount rate back to the present value. 
So that's what discount rate is. I like to use 10% because I like to use 10% as sort of the 10 to 15% is kind of what I use. I, I do that because it's the kind of the, the lowest risk kind of return that I expect out of my investment. Nice. Thank you so much for explaining that. So effectively what you're doing is it's kind of like a reverse annual growth rate formula. If, if you were to say it like that, instead of saying, okay, if you invest a hundred dollars in X amount of years, it becomes a thousand. You're basically saying this company, if it makes a thousand in year 10 or whatever it is, if we assume a certain growth rate, we're discounting it right to the present, like you said, and therefore these shares today are worth this. Yeah, exactly. 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 And, And one thing that I'd like to mention as the reason why you have this crazy stock market frenzies is because at the current, at the present time, we don't have uh, time value of money anymore because it's all, it's all sort of washed away. And so, what you're seeing is people are talking about growth. People are focused on growth stocks and and the future and the growth earnings and the future future earnings. And that's because there is no discount rate at the present time. And so, hundred dollars you earn in the future is equally worth hundred dollars you earn today because there is no discount rate. So. Companies come can come out and say, we're going to make $10 million, $200 million, $300 million in the future. Well, because the discount rate is zero, you basically value that at the present time value. And so that's why you have these crazy multiple expansion because there's no discount. The discount rate has been you know, squashed and minimized because of the macro environment that we live in today. Exactly. And yeah, I agree with you. It's uh, It's really distorting some valuations of a lot of parts of the market. So bring it back to Lennar real quick. You mentioned you yeah. did the calculation and what is the per share value based on that 10% discount rate? Yeah. If I do that, I get about $110. $110. And just for everyone's knowledge, the current price today, Lennar, ticker symbol LEN, closed at $107 today as we're recording this. So what that means, Becco, is if you were to purchase at $110, let's say today, you would expect over the length of time in your model that you would make 10% annually. Is that basically how it would work from the investor's perspective who would be buying those shares at that price in your model? Yeah. So if this were to work out, you're talking about these assumptions being right. And these assumptions are the growth rate in the next 10, in the next, you know, one to three years is going to be 20%. And then four to six years, about 12%. And seven to 10 years, about 10%. And this is also assuming that we're not, you know, doing any kind of share buybacks either. And so that, that could also juice the returns for investors. So that's, that's kind of the assumption here. Yeah. And, and what we like to do as investors is that you calculate intrinsic value, but then you want to get it at a discount of that value to protect against vicissitudes of the market tomorrow we could have war and and the whole market would go crazy and we could lose half of our value so we want to make sure that we protect against downside and so you want to make sure that you get the price below this intrinsic value so i know we talked about this in previous episode both of our respective listeners complain that we talk about companies that are always overvalued but that's kind of the idea and yeah yeah i mean at the end of the day look i've been tempted i was looking today so this is may 4th I was looking at a bunch of stocks 
today in my watch list. And I went over one of my watch lists is more of like the growth oriented companies. And these stocks were coming down a lot. But then I looked at what I anticipated their intrinsic value to be still nowhere near what they're probably worth. And so that's why it's just so important not to be too tempted because margin of safety really is just such a fundamental part of investing and specifically value investing. Uh, So that's why we're protecting ourselves. So in this situation, Becco, we've got in your model around $110 per share based on your assumptions. Current share price is $107. What does that mean? Does that mean basically it's more or less fairly valued in your opinion? I think that would be my answer. I think another thing that I want to mention about the intrinsic value is that you want to get it under, but at the same time, you have you have companies that are doing exceptionally well and that are growing at high double digit rate. If that's the case and you got solid business with like great mode around them, then I'm okay paying at or a little bit above intrinsic value. So it's not, you know, set in stone that you have to get it always get it below, but it's obviously cheaper the better <laughs> as as us value investors and bargain hunters yeah so just another comment there on the intrinsic value for sure yeah and that's a great point and tying that back to a point we mentioned earlier in the conversation about return on equity over the long term we're probably going to see our returns mimic or mirror that return on equity figure so yes these models are important yes it's important to buy with a margin of safety but that being said the price that we buy at tends to matter less the longer we hold the company, particularly if it's growing at a solid rate. So we can keep that in mind too, is our holding period, right? Definitely, definitely, exactly. And uh, yeah, I think that's why it's sort of important to, another one strategy people people do and often employ is dollar cost averaging it's 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 always it's always so important to start early because time if you start early times and times on is on your team and it can make your returns a lot a lot a lot better uh, if you start early so for sure yeah because you can you can buy and it's a little bit overvalued and buying is a little bit undervalued over the long term it should even out if you pick the right the right company exactly yeah you got any final thoughts well first of all this was fun alex i had a lot of fun and i think we talked about this company with diverse perspectives i thought we uh, covered a lot of grounds in this episode and previous one as well this company is an interesting one i'm not really familiar with home building uh, industry but i thought this was an interesting exercise to get a glimpse of what the home building industry uh, looked like from an investor standpoint Oh, yeah, for sure, Becco. And yeah, I, I had a lot of fun, too. I I think we covered the gamut on this. We we looked at a lot of numbers, looked at some metrics. We talked about the story, the business overview, how it actually makes money, demographic trends. We talked about commodity prices. I, I think we did this company justice. So yeah. thank you for taking the time to research this and spend some time with me. No, this was a pleasure. Thanks, Alex. We'll do it again. Yeah, for sure. All right. And just for everyone, just to remind everyone, Becco Jang is one of the hosts and founders of Value Investor TV. Go ahead and check out his podcast if you're listening, happen to be listening on a mind show, Stock Stories, and just get some great company insight. Yeah. I'll mention the same, guys. If you're listening to the VITV podcast, definitely go check out Alex's podcast, Stock Stories. 
his podcast. A lot of good stuff there. So go, please go check him out. Wow. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. We really got into a lot of stuff there, right? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I definitely learned a couple of things myself or was reminded of certain concepts or things myself. And it's always good to talk to other people, right? Because that's how we learn. That's how we collaborate. That's how we really hone our craft as investors. It's not all done in isolation. So I want to encourage you, do what I just did with Becco. Go and talk to other investors. If you know other investors, chat with them about analysis. So yeah, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this three-part series with Value Investor TV. And yeah, hopefully you learned something in the process. And definitely, if you know of any podcasts or other people in the investing space that I should be talking to, people that you love and think that it would just be awesome if we collaborated, definitely let me know. Send me a DM on Instagram at Stock Storyteller. Again, that's at Stock Storyteller. You can email me too at alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. And let me know who you think I should be collaborating with. I want to talk to more investors and I want to talk to you more. So definitely drop me a note and just let me know. All right. Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Information presented here on Stock Stories is for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. You and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances.